Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Uh, before we get into this one, just wanted to remind you all that we are taking questions. I've gotten a bunch of really good ones uh, for Bill Belcourt. He's going to be hosting a show here off in the very near future uh, dedicated to just just answering your questions. Um, so if you got a question for the Yoda of the sky, uh, shoot it over either via the website, cloudbasedmayhem.com, or my Facebook page, uh, Gavin N. McClurg, or Instagram, or however you want to reach out to me, uh, please do so. This episode, I don't think, I mean, you know, it's dangerous to compare one to the next uh, with all the incredible guests uh, we've been so fortunate to have on the show, but I don't think I've smiled this much in any of them. We are rewinding the clock here to 1973 when these guys used to fly hang gliders uh, sitting in a swing seat on gliders that uh, maybe had two and a half or three to one glide ratio and gonna bring you all the way up through to current day. An amazing talk with a complete legend, the prince of hang gliding they used to call Larry Tudor. Uh, I've been requested to get Larry on the show now for a while, and I gotta say, this was a real treat. Um, some of these stories, I promise, are gonna totally blow your mind. Uh, Larry gets sucked up and, uh, well, not sucked up, but has to deal with flying in a tornado, <laughs> uh, trying to break the distance record down in Hobbs. Uh, we go back to when, you know, thermals weren't even understood uh the 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 uh advent truly of cross-country flying started with these guys uh larry was considered along with tom tom supencheck i think i'm saying that right uh, as one of the highest regarded hang glider pilots in the world in the mid 80s uh larry was the first person to fly over 200 miles incredibly in 1983 if you can imagine that on those wings back then he was the first person to fly over 300 miles in 1994, uh, and when he went 308 miles across a great swath of the Southwest, uh, that wasn't repeated for more than 10 years. Um, this is just, strap yourself in. This is a long one, but it is a goodie. I promise you're gonna laugh, you're gonna shake your head, uh, you're gonna wonder at the absurdity of it all. So, without further ado, please enjoy this terrific conversation with uh, my friend Larry Tudor. Larry Tudor, it is awesome to have you on the show. Thank you so much. We've been trying to uh, track this down for a few weeks now, and uh, but I'm actually glad it took a little bit of time because I was able to do some some reading about you. Uh, why don't you uh, tell me about where you are and uh, and uh, and then I'd love to hear about you know how you got into this sport uh, over because if my additions right over 40 years ago oh ah, yeah sure hi Kevin thanks for having me well basically you know I started flying in my senior year of high school uh, I, I had gone to a, a party in the in the Springs Colorado Springs and the next morning, I was looking through the Sunday supplement of the Rocky Mountain News and saw these guys who had been flying off Pikes Peak and landing on the Broadmoor Golf Course and uh, looked out the window at Pikes Peak and thought, wow, that's pretty cool. But it, it was something so far out of what I, what I thought I could do, I didn't even think about it again until uh, a group of us were at another party and I was in kind of a weak frame of mind. And uh, one of my other friends had already started taking lessons at Shondell up in Golden, 
And uh, he said, you know, it's 45 bucks for a five lesson package. And uh, it's pretty fun. It's pretty easy to do. So went up there and took a couple lessons. I took a five lesson package, but I started flying prone because my glider got delivered uh, rigged for prone. And they didn't have any instructors yet that flew prone. They said, well, if you wait around two or three months, I think one of our instructors is going to be flying prone by then. So, uh, so this was all swingsuit days. Yeah, it was. We had like this, these really stripped down harnesses and no reserve chute, old, you know, little climbing helmet. Maybe if you, if you felt like it, uh, it was really, really primitive. <laughs> 45 bucks for a five lesson package. That is just a bit. I mean, when I look at, so give me a year. Is it, is this 77? I think it was 73. 73. Oh my goodness. I mean, when I look back at footage of that, um, you know, it's, it's like footage of the early paragliders. It's just terrifying. I mean, these wings you guys were flying, uh, they just, they don't even look like wings. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, what, what was the, what was the glide ratio on these things you guys were flying? They were claiming four, but I think it was closer to three or three and a half to one. So like a really bad speed wing, basically. <laughs> yeah. You know, but even so, getting your feet off the ground for the first time and uh, the time I, the, my first flight was uh, on a day where it had just snowed like six or eight inches. And so only myself and a girl showed up for lessons and a student from Boulder CU had hitchhiked down to Golden to give me a lesson and they were going to cancel the lesson, but uh i i was there the instructor was there and because the girl didn't really like to fly in the snow so much i got just a ton of takeoff and landings but i remember the very first time my feet left the ground and i could look back up the hill and see where my last step was and see where i was uh when i landed that was just such a thrill you know to know that i actually flew from point a to point b and when did when did it kind of so you I mean, was it just purely sledders? I mean, was there was there ridge soaring? Was it was it was it on anybody's radar that you could use these things to go places back then? Uh, absolutely not. No, basically, uh, if you flew in a small hurricane or you know pretty stiff uh, breeze like twenty five thirty miles an hour, you could you could make passes. Uh, for instance, one time I was coming home from work uh, out in Aurora and I was driving across Cherry Creek Reservoir. And I looked to my right, and uh, there was a guy in a paraglider following me, uh, you know, right next to my car. And so I turned around and went back to the turnout so I could watch him. And uh, that was uh, a local pilot named Bill Ferrari, who was pretty much a bird and uh, a really special pilot. He was he was an absolute natural when it came to flying. He's the one that uh, loaned me his glider and harness and taught me how to fly prone. But uh, unless you had a really good ridge soaring sight and it was blowing – you know, small gale, you really couldn't stay up. And so sometimes people would be flying the west side of Green Mountain uh, on the lee side of the Rockies, and you could just see the turbulence flowing right through the wing because they didn't have battens. And uh, when, they, when they'd when they hit turbulence, the, the wing would just uh, transfer the, the turbulence right through the, the sail. So, uh, yeah, it was pretty scary. I was pretty happy just to be able to take off and, and glide down that was that was good enough for me and find and we kept trying to find higher spots to to jump from with uh with me I'd, I'd always try to find places 
that had nowhere, uh, nothing I could hit out in front. So I could just jump off and wherever I glided to, that's where I landed. What was the, you guys are such pioneers. That is, I just got the biggest grin on my face right now. Imagining this was it, was it like, what was the accident to flight ratio Were people just dropping out of the sky left and right? Or did you guys kind of have it figured out in a semblance of safety or, you know, was it just one man for himself? (laughs) Just Yahoo. No, it was it was it was pretty much cowboy Yahoo flying. Yeah. yeah um yeah. and I was one of the worst Yahoos. I I didn't know it at the time and kind of sort of discovered it well after the fact, after I'd had gotten much better at flying. But my first glider was delivered to me with the CG probably about six or eight inches aft of where it should have been. And they also had it rigged for seated instead of prone. So in order to keep the thing flying, I had to fly around with the control bar almost down to my knees. And people would look at me and say, no, 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 you need to let the bar out to your chest. You know, that's where you should be flying. And every time I do that, I'd just go right into a spin and spin into the ground. And so, <laughs> oh my God. so I was like, okay, but I don't think I'm going to like this. And did you just have an uncanny ability? Because I understand you're you're not a big guy, right? I mean, did you you did, did you just have an uncanny ability to bounce back then, or or did you just yeah. take some visits to the hospital? I think I was just really lucky. Right, I was really lucky. Yeah. Um, there was one time I was flying from Cherry Creek Reservoir, and uh, the glider turned uh, to the right, and before I could recover from the turn, it was near the bottom where the outlet is, the spillway for the reservoir, and there's a lot of power lines and things at the bottom. And I, rather than hitting the power lines, I parachuted the glider by pumping it uh, from about 35, 40 feet and hit flat on my face. And I think the reason that my voice is so unique right now is because I, I hit my larynx pretty hard. My doctor was telling me that this new sport of hang gliding was probably too dangerous and I should think about quitting. But uh, here I am. <laughs> so you were asking about the the whole progression of, of hang gliding well at the time i bought my first hang glider uh there was this new hang glider coming out called the shondell comp mm-hmm. and their f- first glider was just a shondell and then there was the shondell comp well they had this bright idea of uh telescoping crossbars so you wouldn't have to pin anything and uh by the time i the, the glider was delivered i think there was like 40 fatalities already and I wasn't smart enough to ask for my money back, but I had this brand new glider that I never flew even once. Wait a uh, minute, there was there was forty fatalities on that glider or in yeah. hand gliding on yeah, that, that. Wow, okay, that put Shondell out of business. It the the shop became uh, Golden Sky Sales, right at Sixth Avenue and Interstate seventy and Golden, right at the base of Green Mountain. But uh, that uh, that one glider pretty much put Shondell Sky Sales out of business. Uh, by the time it was delivered to me, I had already uh, picked up another glider from uh, Sunsail, who had, was a, it was a company that started up at Stapleton uh, Airport. And uh, because I was really fascinated with hang gliders, they, they let me hang around and cut tubes and drill tubes and assemble gliders. And I, I got their very first 17-foot standard. And uh, because that was their first standard and they weren't test flying gliders back then. They were just delivering them. Uh, my glider had just one foot chopped off of, of each tube, you know, shorter keel, shorter wing. And that's why the, uh, the CG was about six or eight inches farther aft than it should have been. 
because the hang gliders were so easy to to produce, there was hundreds, literally hundreds of of people uh, making hang gliders. It was just uh, an 18 foot long leading edge, 18 foot long keel, and a crossbar and three three degrees of billow to the sail. So uh, it was quite easy to make a hang glider. And then, you know, at some point, hang gliding goes through this. I mean, I know it just like paragliding, it's gone through all kinds of revolutions. And was that with the advent of like Will's Wing? And when, when did you guys start figuring out that you could use them to go places? For me, I think the, the biggest transformation in hang gliding came when the Dragonfly was created by Roy Haggard at Ultralight Products. He, he uh, opened up the nose angle and cut off the tips. And those were called truncated wingtips back then. They were squared off tips so that uh, they weren't pointy tips, which would cause uh, stalls and spins. So that went from about, I don't know, four, four to one to eight and a half to one. And the first person in Colorado to get a dragonfly was Charlie Boffman, Aka Hawkman. And Charlie, Charlie was a bird. He was, he was definitely a bird. And, he would take off Lookout Mountain in Golden, and while everybody else was making passes at the top, he'd just wander out away from the mountain and start circling and just get insanely high, and everybody just thought it was magic. And so that was definitely the, the first person who really started climbing out high in thermals. At that point in time, I, I had uh, kind of given up on the glider that I was flying because I'd, I'd gone out to Lookout Mountain and watched Charlie and watched him for hours, and I could see what he was doing, and I knew that I could do that if I just had had the right equipment. And another pilot in Colorado, Gary Folkers, uh, took me under his wing and sold me a Cal Gliders Wind Gypsy, which was another truncated glider out of the Bay Area. And he said it was on one condition that you know until he was completely satisfied with my technique that. You know, I couldn't couldn't go anywhere else and fly it. And he was under a lot of pressure from the local pilots who uh, pretty much didn't want me around. They wanted me to go somewhere else and kill myself. <laughs> Seriously, in, in that's what park. they were saying. It's like, right. go somewhere else and kill yourself. We don't want you. Don't come back here. <laughs> and so uh, just about then I had some vacation saved up and I wanted to go to California because back then, you know, California was somewhat the Mecca because that's where all the magazines were being published and uh, they were the ones saying they were the best pilots ever anywhere. And so it was like more or less the birthplace of hang gliding with all the ridge soaring they were doing up and down the coast. Mm. And Gary said, well, you know, if you're going to go to California, you might want to go through Salt Lake City because, you know, there's some pretty good pilot, pilots there and some pretty good flying there and you might like it. And uh, I remember in June of 1976 uh, throwing this, Cal Gliders Wind Gypsy on top of my Mazda RX-2 and heading west and uh, came down Parley's Canyon on a beautiful spring day. Everything was green. Everything was beautiful. And the, I popped out uh, at the bottom and looked out over Salt Lake Valley and looked to the left down the Wasatch and looked up at Mount Olympus and went, wow, that's got to be where they flew. So I went driving up into Olympus Cove trying to find the road up to launch because it was blown straight into Mount Olympus. And I was asking uh, some of the locals there, like, Where, where's the launch? Where's the launch? And they said, oh, no, hanglers don't fly here. They fly uh, down there at that little hill. You know, and they pointed me toward the point of the mountain. I was, I was thinking, you've got to be kidding. You've got all these giant, beautiful mountains, and, and that's where they fly. So um, the next, they, they invited me in to 
spend the night. It turned out it was, uh, I think, the president or vice president of, of uh, Smith's or, or Skaggs. I'm ca- I can't remember exactly which one, but it was one of the big uh, drugstore food chains. Okay, yeah. And uh, they were, you know, totally LDS. We were saying prayers in, at, you know, over dinner and super nice people. Um, so I had, a, I had a really good f- first impression. And the next day I headed down to the point of the mountain with my glider and waited around uh, on uh, by the south side and uh, waited around for some pilots. And finally a, a pilot in a, a Jeep showed up, Mike Tingey, and asked me if I wanted to go up to the top with him. And I said, yeah, sure. And uh, we loaded up on his Jeep and went up to the top of the north side. And it was blowing straight in about 25 or 30, which was like 25 or 30 more than I'd ever flown in. And <laughs> I was a little bit nervous, uh, to say the least. And finally, after like an hour, 45 <laughs> minutes, well, after a really long time of him standing there on launch with, you know, trying to launch me, uh, he said, hey, look, you know, if you don't launch, uh, you know, you're going to have to walk down. So I launched and I had been reading in all the books that that much wind, the turbulence is like a factor of, you know, eight or 10 times more turbulent than, you know, smaller wind. So my first several passes, I was holding on the control bar so hard because I was just waiting for this turbulence that never came. And I just floated up like 2,000 or 2,500 feet above the north side. And uh, since I was in a high-performance glider, and back then, a lot of the pilots at the point were still flying standards. Everyone was looking up at this Colorado pilot thinking, oh, this guy's pretty good. And so I went along with it, you know, so I didn't tell him. I didn't know what the <laughs> heck I was doing. And my very first flight there was an hour and a half, which was, you know, about an hour and 25 minutes longer than I'd ever flown before. And I, I was just in love with the place. Went out to dinner with the pilots afterward. There's like eight or ten pilots. We all went out to this uh, sleazy Chinese restaurant on State Street called the South Seas. We called it the South Disease because usually we get sick eating there. But, uh, you know, for like $2.50, we could get the special with some jasmine tea. And uh, Patricia Johnson, who was a, another pilot, was waitressing there, so we usually didn't tip. And uh, <laughs> she'd bring us uh, just basket after basket of saltines, and uh, it was uh, it was all good. Yeah, that does sound all good. So you 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 ride into town, and you're like this, you're all you're the local hero. <laughs> Little did they know you didn't even know how to launch. <laughs> I love it. The point back then was absolutely pristine. There was there was nothing out in front of the north side. Nothing on the bench. Um, it was just all sagebrush on the bench, actually. Wow. Uh, that and on the so south neat. side, it was. It was just beautiful. And on the south side, uh, out in front, there was nothing out in front. I, I don't think there was even a building until you got to the Lehigh exit. And the, the grass uh, was like a foot and a half, two feet high on the, on the south side. There were no weeds yet. It wasn't all eroded off. There was no uh, – Geneva, Geneva hadn't uh, – destroyed the mountain yet so yeah it was just a beautiful place to fly wow. absolutely it, yeah the point of the mountain is just beautiful it really is wow that would be that would have been an awesome time to be there god that thing just gets munched and munched and munched every year it's 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 quite sad it's still amazing it's still great training but yeah that would have been an incredible well fast forward a little bit for me larry to like I, I, we're still kind of in the mid 70s um when did it all start kind of clicking? And I'm assuming a big part of that's getting on a different wing. But take me up to when you guys started uh, 
flying, you know, when you, when it was more and not just ridge soaring, but when you guys were figuring out kind of the thermal scene and give me some, also give me some, I'd love to hear some perspective of kind of who, who were, who were your mentors back then and who was, who was around, who was doing it, who was pushing hard. Yeah, that's good. Uh, because there were a lot of really exceptional pilots back then in Salt Lake, just because of the amount of airtime they were getting and the fact that they were in, inland and, uh, Flying in thermals too, and flying in thermals in wind is is uh, probably one of the harder things to do. Sure. So, yeah. So when uh, when I went out to dinner uh, with those guys, I met J.C. Brown, who was uh, out there from New York City, and he had convinced his dad he was going to school at the University of Utah, and but he was taking his money from his dad and you know spending it on on hang gliding. <laughs> and so he had an apartment down there in the avenues, and I had a car, transportation. He used to hitchhike, get this, he used to hitchhike from downtown with his hang glider to the point of the mountain. Wow. Uh, yeah, so JC uh, and I hooked up, and we were both about the same size, 5'10", 130 pounds, uh, and we were both air junkies. He was still flying a Jim Lynn standard. Jim Lynn was a manufacturer in Kaysville, Utah. He made standard hang gliders. And uh, JC would uh, would have a lot of trouble once it started to get really windy. He he he. Uh, I remember he got ground looped a couple of times on the south side, and each time that would happen, he'd break his king post. So he went down to the hardware store and got some Schedule Forty steel and made himself a steel king post. And, <laughs> Solve that problem. <laughs> you guys are awesome. I, I just we we've gotten so soft now, haven't we? I mean, just the gear that we have, and I mean, hitchhiking with a hang glider—that's that's awesome. Yeah, I know. And now everything packs up in a little bag, and you can call Uber, and you've got Spot and InReach, and you name it. It's uh, you know, it's still just as fun. Uh, well, so so anyhow, uh, yeah, JC and I start flying together a lot and we were we were pretty competitive we we'd both try to get the most amount of hours and airtime and and keep trying to break our personal best for how high we got or how long we stayed up or how many hours we got each week and uh then there was uh, also lance merrill was he was very active he's uh hard as nails uh lds uh concrete uh construction worker he was just absolutely hard as nails usually had a tan that made him look like a native American. He was so dark from spending all his days out in the sun and had this giant Cheshire grin, you know, with white, used these brilliant white teeth. And, uh, so there was this one time that, uh, JC and Lance and Mike Tingy and I went down to Camel's Pass and it was blown. It was, it was already blown like 30, 35. And I still had my wind gypsy. So it was out of the question for me to fly because that thing didn't penetrate so well. And, uh, then, uh, JC was a little bit conservative and so was Mike Tingey, but Lance was all for it. He was going, Hey, you know, we fly this all the time on the South side. So, you know, I'm going to go for it. And so we helped Lance set up and launch and Lance just went straight up like 3000, 4,000 feet. And we were wondering if he was doing that on purpose <laughs> and then he like disappears to the right on a standard down, you know, down toward uh, Salt Lake city had he just disappeared. And we're like, well, that doesn't tell us a lot, does it? So after an hour or so, 
apparently Lance flew down to Provo Canyon and before crossing Provo Canyon over toward Timpanogos, he was wondering where we were. So he flew back. So we spotted him and he's just in orbit and we see him doing all these aerobatics and, and spirals and he's, he's coming down and we're going, huh, this is, this is interesting. What's going on with Lance? And, uh, Lance starts, uh, flying by us yelling, uh, move the Jeep, move the Jeep. And we're like, what's he saying? And, and then he goes, move the fucking Jeep. <laughs> we're going, oh, shit. So Mike gets in the Jeep and backs it down the last little four-wheel drive trail to the top of Camel's Pass. And then Lance uh, started trying to set up to land on top of Camel's Pass, just like he, we used to do on the top of the north side. But uh, he, got, he got caught by the rotor and dove into this oak tree on the backside of the mountain and just, just exploded the glider. And we went running down there and there was nothing moving. And I was like, Oh no, my friend Lance, he's dead. He's, he's gone. And I didn't really want to see it. And then, you know, there's this rustling and Lance looks up from underneath the trailing edge with that, that giant big smile of his. He's going, that was the best flight I've ever had. And I was thinking, this guy's crazy. He hit his head too hard. You know, he just crashed and destroyed his glider. And he's, saying it's the best fight he ever had so uh you know we we untangled lance get him out of the bush you know he's he's we get him out of there and pack up his wing it's all broken and he's all bummed out because you know now he's on the ground on maybe the best day ever in history and uh he talks jc into letting him fly his glider so he goes hey jc you know can i fly your glider jc's yeah okay lance yeah you can fly mine so we set up jc's standard regalo <laughs> wait the and, same day yeah same day and by but by then it by then it was like two thirty, three o'clock it's in the ripping. afternoon so it was really ripping so about the time the glider set up jc's thinking well you know the glider set up i'd rather fly than let lance fly my glider so uh jc launches and jc starts climbing out just like Lance did and then went into like three or 400 foot straight down dive, you know, full left dive. The glider's just flapping. He's pointed down like a lawn dart and he pulls out and he flies out again. And next thing you know, there goes JC into another, you know, you know, 500, 600 foot dive straight down toward the ground. And I thought he was doing aerobatics. I was going, all right, JC, ring it out. And I'm looking at the other guys, and they're going, uh, I don't think he's doing that on purpose. And apparently, JC got so freaked out by those two full left dives, you know, getting pitched over and just going into these these vertical dives that he just flew straight out. So he he flew straight out over the top of Springville and just out out into the, the farmland, and he just landed where he, you know, he happened to touch down because he didn't make a single turn. <laughs> and that was the, that was the last time JC flew that Jim Lynn standard. He sold that, and and then he got um, he got another glider, and that's when JC and I started uh, really starting to to fly competitively with each other because uh, our gliders were were uh, were pretty high performance for the time. I think they were about the best gliders around. I think he had a Cirrus three from Electrofly in Albuquerque, and I had a Mark two B Dragonfly from from ultralight products. And when did, so at, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, when did the, when did the kind of comp scene begin there and, and how did that, that all start going? Oh, okay. So competition. Well, basically leading up to competition, I never intended to compete in hang gliding because, uh, when I was younger and in high school, I used to 
played lots of chess and then I started flying or I'm sorry, I started competing in chess. And when I started to compete in chess, it kind of ruined it for me. So I didn't want that to happen with hang gliding. I just wanted to hang glide for fun. I didn't care about competitions, didn't want to go to competitions. But uh, anyhow, JC and I were getting like uh, 35, 40 hours a week. We'd fly the south side in the morning and then usually the mountains in the afternoon. And that winter, we had to get out of Salt Lake City because it was too cold. And we wandered down to southern uh, Arizona and then southern California. So over the course of the very first year, uh, we honed our thermaling skills and discovered that our thermaling skills were already you know, pretty much better than anyone in Southern California. We were thermaling at Torrey Pines and getting uh, several hundred feet over, and all the locals were telling us we we're out of our minds. There's no thermals at Torrey Pines. It's, <laughs> it must be concentrated ridge lift. But, uh, so when I, was, I, I stayed at Torrey Pines and became a Torrey rat, just uh, putting a pillow over the brake of my Mazda RX-2 and sleeping across the two front seats and JC hitchhiked up to Van Nuys to work for Bill Bennett and uh, Bill Bennett Delta Wings working with Dick Boone the designer there and so was there was there money in it back then for these designers or was everybody just doing it out of love uh, you've got me I think no JC was yeah. making he was making a salary he was making an income okay and, okay uh, it was a real job yeah. And being at Torrey Pines, though, everybody kind of came through Torrey Pines at some time or another during the winter months. And so uh, the UP van showed up from Temecula with all the UP pilots. And, you know, that was my my favorite glider at the time. I'd never met any of these guys I'd read about. And Pete Brock was there with Roy Haggard and Mike Quinn and all of his competition pilots. And they'd brought down the new Spider. It was a it was another truncated glider like the Dragonfly. And I, I had pretty much... I uh, thought that the, there would never be another glider as good as the Dragonfly, so I was content just to fly my Dragonfly. But it was bothering Pete Brock that I was sitting up there above all his comp pilots on the on their ne next generation wing. So he said, "Hey, you know, I'd like you to fly this glider, and uh, you know, go up and fly this glider." I said, "No, no, no. I like the Dragonfly. I'm, I love the Dragonfly. That's that's my glider." He says. So then he tricked me. He said, "Oh, oh, could you do me a favor then and fly the glider? Just tell me what you think of it. You know, tell me what we could do to make it better. And I said, well, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll do that. And I went up there and as soon as my feet left the ground, I was like, oh man, I, I can't fly my glider ever again. This glider is so much better. Ah, and, nice. Yeah. So Pete said, okay, Hey, take this glider back with you to Utah. And you know, if you want to sell our gliders in Utah, that'd be great. And, uh, so I went back to Utah and started being the UP dealer in Utah and, so that summer, which would have been 77, uh, we were flying a lot in, in Salt Lake City. JC, uh, JC was flying the point of the mountain every day while I was trying to work uh, construction, doing framing and, and some other stuff with another hang glider pilot, trying to get, get some money for the summer. And then uh, that summer, a pilot from Montana asked me if I wanted to join him at a competition in Invermeer, British Columbia, called Mount, Mount Swansea. And on the way up there, we flew some places in Idaho, and then we went to the big southern Butte and flew a couple times there. And that was actually the first time that I ever got crazy high in a hang glider. I, I found a thermal and just locked into it, and it was so concentrated on the thermal, I didn't realize how high I was and didn't have an altimeter. And by the time the thermals topped out, 
I couldn't find the butte anymore because everything is sort of flattened out beneath me. And I had to trace my way in from Arco and uh, see the switchbacks up to where the mountain was. And was like, oh, my God, I'm really high. How high do you think you were? Yeah, I don't know, 16,000, 17,000 right. feet for sure. It was, were you hypoxic? <laughs> probably. probably. Yeah, I was probably hypoxic. Where am I? <laughs> that's, a good, yeah. that's a good sign you're hypoxic. <laughs> yeah, and I was frozen too. But uh, at any rate, uh, that was the first time I ever really, really got high because in Salt Lake, there was usually an inversion or something that would hold the thermals down a lot lower. And so then we, from there, we went up to Mount Swansea. And back then, the rules for the competition were kind of freeform. Every competition had its own sort of rules that were made up for that competition. And the first round, uh, the meet director said, okay, here's today's format. What we're going to do is fly off of the mountain, out toward these pylons. And so you're going to get points for how fast you get to the pylons. And then from there, it's how many pylons, how many figure eights you can do. And then there's a spot landing. Okay. At, was race was race to goal even a thing yet? No, it was okay. That's no still way off in the future. Country. Okay. Uh, so basically, this the, the meet director talked everybody into flying really fast out to the figure eights and then seeing how many figure eights you could get. Well, <laughs> I was watching people take off and going through all this lift, and they were flying fast. And I was thinking, wow, if they would have just uh, fly slower, they'd get out there to a lot higher. And I took off, and I. I'd push out and climb as fast as I could in the thermals. Just You couldn't make any circles in the thermals. That, was, that wasn't allowed. But by the time I got out to the landing area, I was a couple thousand over the takeoff and managed to do some ridiculous number of figure eights. And I could even extend my figure eights to where I'd hit the next thermal coming through and you know work, work the, that back to the launch. So I had a pretty good uh, lead going into the, to the competition, managed to, to win that. And... That was pretty exciting because at that moment, it was just after the world championships where uh, another pilot in that competition, Dean Kupchenko, had gotten second place. So it, there's nothing as dangerous as a, as a young pilot that comes to the realization that uh, he can yeah. beat the people that he's competing against. Well, when you say world championships, what, what what were they doing for the world? Like these figure eight things? Or were they more like stunts? Because they weren't cross country, right? Were you racing or what, what were you doing? Yeah, that's for world championships. That's a good question. I wasn't. I didn't go to the world championships, but I think. They, <laughs> um, I think Who knows? That, yeah. Uh, from what I can recall, I think what they were most focused on back then was uh, how long you were in the air. Uh, that was a big thing, right? And then spot landing. Okay, so. Uh, only because I, I think I could listen to these stories from there from forever, but only because I, I want to be mindful a little bit about time, and I wanted to I want to get into some of your world records and some of the huge distance. So um, <clears throat> get me get me from where we are here. So you're kind of flying Swansea, you're doing figure eights to the you know in 1983, as I understand it, you were the first person in the world to fly over 200 miles. It wasn't counted because you had to have an observer and all that back then, of course, because we didn't have GPSs keeping track of everything. But still, um, you know, I mean, how do you go from that kind of wild cowboy to, and not just you, I mean, everybody back then, but how do you, what happened there? Was it, was it, was it, obviously it was gliders, but what else was going on? And, and you know, and I, I don't even think, was the Owens even discovered then in 77, like when you guys were going up to Invermere, were people flying the Owens already? Well, actually, 
I think the Owens was just getting discovered. Okay. We were, when JC and I were in Southern California, uh, he, he told me about these two pilots he met in Silmar, the Silmar uh, Van Nuys area, who had been flying this magical place called Cerro Gordo. Well, at any rate, the description of the place didn't sound possible. You know, the, the amount of vertical to the side, to the mountains and just the, the, the length of the mountain range and the, the size of the thermals just didn't sound even possible. And, and back then we were still convinced that Salt Lake City and the Wasatch was the best place on the planet to fly. So when JC and I got back to Utah in 77, there was one day where we were flying Francis Peak. And because it was a little bit southeasterly, uh, it was pushing away the marine effect of the Great Salt Lake. And JC and I actually got pretty high. We got to cloud base uh, and we flew across to uh, Bountiful, which is where we usually like to spend uh, the end of the day trying to stay up. And then uh, uh, we just kept going. And uh, on that, that day we flew down to the bench at the point of the mountain which is like 38 miles, which at that time it was just a few miles shorter than John and Teresa Liars had flown in the Owens Valley. And so that was really the beginning of some long cross countries. There was the people doing cross country off Cerro Gordo, uh, Scarier Gordoff. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, then we start flying up and down the Wasatch. Um, in 77, <clears throat> Lance had to go on mission <clears throat> Did you have Varios? Oh, we had these giant Culver Varios that had like eight AA batteries in them. (laughs) And uh, they probably cost us a point and glide because there was these big boxy things on the the control bar that – so you had had that. You had like uh, some kind of altimeter. Anything else? Yeah, I didn't have an altimeter. JC had a Skymaster skydiving altimeter that was good to about 1,000 feet. But uh, (laughs) – we didn't have anything very sensitive back then. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so, so anyhow, let me let me jump real quick to to Lance's story. Lance had to go on mission, but Lance wanted to break the world distance record, and he wanted to do it on a standard. So they had discovered this place in northern Arizona called the Echo Cliffs, and a couple of the pilots who were official observers of the USHGA went down there with him to observe his flight, and. Uh, he, he almost got the, the distance record. He was flying cross-country, uh, far, flying north toward uh, the Glen Canyon Dam, and uh, a thunderstorm that dumped behind him pushed this east wind and uh, caused him to lose control and get forced down in front of the Echo Cliffs. And he, he somehow landed on the Echo Cliffs in a standard regalo, broke the glider down, and using that to as a chalk or a wedge, in the, in the cracks of the cliff, managed to get down off the cliff. He didn't break the world record on his standard, but uh, the next day he got back to Salt Lake City and then went on mission. So that's about the very start of, of uh, the cross-country scene in, in hang gliding. And give me, a, give uh, me a year? Oh, that was the summer of 77. Okay. And, and then I think it was the summer of 78 when George Worthington worked it out with the FAI in France to begin having official world records. And then George... George got some of the first official world records uh, in the Owens Valley. And Jerry Katz uh, from 
Pasadena flew from Cerro Gordo up to Benton Station, which is just short of 100 miles. So those were the first big flights in, in a hang glider. And was that... When 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 George did that, was that just you know? Did it, I mean, obviously, it didn't spread via internet back then. But did that just kind of go worldwide? And that did everybody just go, "Whoa, what?" Well, yeah, actually, Jerry Katz's flight that that flight that was almost a hundred miles was was very monumental, and that 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 definitely went worldwide. And so the following year, uh, a pilot in uh, Bishop uh, Don Partridge. Uh, organized the first cross-country classic in the Owens Valley. And so Pete Brock knew that I flew cross-country and said he'd pay my way to this competition. He said it was right up my alley. You know, go go out there and see what you can do. And drove out across the desert. And, uh, you know, I came down West Guard Pass into the Owens Valley looking up at Boundary Peak. And instantly I knew why these guys were getting these crazy long flights because it was just the most magnificent mountain range you could imagine mm. well you've probably been oh, there yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing it is amazing the scale is is hard to describe yeah so that was that was when cross country started catching on that's when cross country became a thing and that's when cross country started to make its way into all the competitions mm. this was the first cross country classic in owens valley and that's been going on yeah that was what 78 right yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Carrie talked about that a little bit in her podcast. So, I mean, so you've been flying in the Wasatch, you know, and the Wasatch is, is meaty for sure. Uh, but the Sierras are kind of a new, you know, was it, was it a little bit, oh God, when you got out there? Cause you guys used to fly that all summer, right? Exactly. Yeah. We'd fly it in middle of the day, any, any day of the week. Yeah, so, I mean, that's just, that's, you know, when I, when I got into the sport, which is much, much later, you know, that was all, that was all legend, you know, that was all, wow, those guys back in the day, they used to fly this every day. And it wasn't really until Dave Turner that, you know, that paragliders started flying it again in the summer. It happened, it, it used to happen back in the day. And then it just, I don't know, it just got, it got that reputation that scared everybody away and they didn't fly it in the summer. And, you know, then Dave Turner's now gotten, you know, he, he's flying it all the time, but you guys used to fly it all the time. Like it was nothing. I mean, like we, the first time you stepped off Walt's point, was that, was that a little hairy? So we didn't start flying Walt's point regularly. It was, uh, it was more of like a morning sled ride site. But uh, in one, one of the days in the competition in, in the classic, the cross country classic, they had us fly across to the Sierras and we all thought we were just going to get forced down. But uh, even so, we found that there was lift on the Sierras and we, we got up and, and made it back to goal. So at that moment, everybody started to realize that, hey, maybe the Sierras are, are working in the morning and we could get an earlier start. Uh, before that, everyone always thought that Cerro Gordo on the south end of the Inos was the best starting point. And so we started going down there and launching way below Walt's Point. Uh, we were launching off the, the road further down because Walt's Point just seemed like it was too far back in a canyon. And uh, just, a, just at the exact same time we started flying Walt's Point, uh, Steve Moyes was also uh, flying there. And Steve flew – a, an out and return from from Walt's Point to Boundary Peak, and then he couldn't make it back to Walt's Point because it was too late in the day, and he couldn't get up over Walt's Point to do the the return point. But later that week, uh, I, I kind of uh, pimped him by 
taking the same flight, but making my start point out in the valley, something that I could make it back to on the, on the return route. So Steve had already pretty much done the flight, flying up the Sierras, across to the White Mountains, to Boundary Peak, and then all the way back down the White Mountains. And then uh, I got the record for the out and return. And on that flight, actually, I took off and I was flying Waltz Point for the first time. And somebody had told me that the saddle to the right was was always good and I should go to the right side of that saddle. And I accidentally got on the wrong side and had to fly all the way out the canyon on the lee side mm. to the front and make a low save before I even got up to start my cross-country flight. And I was already hot and sweating and, and worn out before my flight even started. <laughs> so... So that's kind of when we started flying Waltz Point. And I mean, you guys were you guys were getting. I mean, e- even back then, you guys must have been getting up seventeen, eighteen grand, right? Were you getting high? Were you getting tall? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're not using oxygen and stuff, right? We didn't even have, we didn't even carry water. It was stupid. But <laughs> no, it was stupid. It was, okay, so uh, so I, I definitely want to tap some of the stupidity here too. But so I got to jump to this. Uh, your 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 record flight in in eighty three, um, you know you're you're doing these out and returns. Uh, you know the competition scene has now been kind of established. You guys are flying cross country. Um, was that was that something that just happened on a really good day, or was that something you really had in your sights? Because that was pretty. I mean, you're just talking about you know the first hundred miles milers are being done, just you know in seventy eight seventy nine. I mean, I imagine this was a pretty big deal and then i'm not trying to you know I, I know you don't want to make this about you i'm just trying to say you know like that's a big deal i mean 200 miles in 83 that's incredible it's, it was that you know was that really a product of just this constant getting after it and training i mean did you have that in your sights i guess that's my question did you have that in your sights to do something like that oh yeah yeah definitely well we knew it was possible because during the cross-country classic we'd be taking off gunter and flying uh, way up past Looning and even as far as Gaps, Nevada. So we were getting lots of flights out into the desert and figuring out the desert at different times of the day because uh, there's different valleys that uh, have different wind conditions, and there's there's like a sea breeze that comes off a of Walker late, Lake late in the day. And so we started, one, we started figuring out where we wanted to be at what time of day out far into Nevada. So we already had it kind of scoped out all the way to Austin, Nevada, or at least to the Shoshone and Toyabe Mountains. So we we just needed a way to get off the ground earlier and out into Nevada earlier. And from Cerro Gordo, you really couldn't do that because the sun wasn't on the Inyos or the White Mountains quite yet. So uh, it, it really was, a, it was really, uh, you know, Steve Moyes and and the discovery that Waltz Point uh, had just great conditions. Yeah, at 9.30 in the morning, it, it was already just really beautiful flying. It was pleasant. The thermals weren't crazy or strong. And, uh, you, you know, you get to go up past Lone Pine Peak and Mount Whitney and Mount Williamson and just looking over the back at all these just beautiful mountains. So we started figuring out the white mountains and the Sierras and which mountains you wanted to be at, at what time of day and how to get across the Valley. Uh, after you're, the talking, co- you're talking about crossing there at Bishop and getting over to the whites. Yeah. yeah. So, so we, we discovered uh, how, how to fly the white mountains and the, and the Sierras early in the morning. 
uh, after each of the the cross country meets, we'd we'd spend like another uh, three or four weeks in in Owens Valley, and it was just a wonderful place to be. Even if you're not flying, we'd we'd go hiking or bouldering or hitting the hot springs or the artesians for swimming. And uh, there's just tons of opportunities, tons of fun stuff to do outside in the Owens. And uh, on this on that particular year when we did uh, 221 miles from Walt's Point, uh, I was there with my girlfriend Lori, who also got a pretty good out and return off Mazurka at a Boundary Peak and back. We I just woke up that morning with, when the record uh, happened and just felt like that was the day, and everything just clicked. Uh, other pilots landed early because they thought it was too turbulent, and uh, I'm not sure why that was uh, because I didn't really feel like it was that turbulent. Now, wait a but, minute. Are you talking about your flight in 83 or in 88? Hmm. Not okay. sure. It <laughs> doesn't matter. Cool. <laughs> I'm not sure. So, so uh, – well, actually, so so for a long time, the longest flight was uh, Jerry Katz at like 96 or 98 miles off of Cerro Gordo. And then after the first cross-country classic, Tom Krejci, no, it was the second cross-country classic, Tom Krejci and Mark Axon and I, we were flying off Cerro Gordo, and uh, that's the first time we made it off the end of the White Mountains and, and broke 100 miles. But we didn't have bear graphs and all the... FAI sporting license stuff and all of, all of the paperwork stuff for an actual world record. And so I, I flew out toward Miller Peak and thought I had the, the world record and then uh, found out later in the day that Tom had beat me by another 10 miles. So at that to- point in time, Tom Krejci had the longest flight in the world and uh, I was second, I guess. And then we, we just uh, celebrated the next couple of days at the hot springs mm-hmm. and it was. Uh, we felt pretty happy about getting the longest flights, and back then it wasn't as important to get the world record itself. Right. So then, after that, then people really started concentrating on the absolute, the actual FAI world okay. records. And was was home in the Owens then? Did you had you moved out there at this point, or were you still living in the Wasatch? Uh, I was living in Utah, okay. but I would spend at least six or eight weeks in in the Owens Valley. So. Uh, I would try to be in the Owens Valley during the best part of the season where the days are the longest and the thermals are the best. Okay. So you, I think you were tapping, you were, you started talking about this other record. So you go 200 miles in 83 and then, uh, and then, and, and that was the record at the time. And then fast forward a, a few more years in 88, you break another record, uh, 243 miles. And that's the one, according to the book, <laughs> that's the one where everybody else landed because it was too turbulent. Uh, so you were, you were talking about that. Did you, was that kind of stay, it was that SOP back then for you? Or did you just have a really high bump tolerance or was that just a day you felt like everything was right? Yeah, I had a really good bump tolerance from flying in the Owens all the time, but it was nothing compared to Don Partridge's. Don Partridge was a local who had a ranch in the hills uh, below Gunter, and when I would think it was bumpy, I'd, I'd ask uh, Don if he thought it was bumpy, and he goes, uh, no. And so I said, well, what's bumpy to you? Because you know, people were tumbling, and people were getting tossed around pretty good, and he'd say, <laughs> oh, well, when I actually have to hold on to the control bar, it, that's when I consider it too bumpy because normally he just rests his elbows on the control bar. So if you lived in the Owens Valley, you definitely uh, would yeah, you, you uh, get a good it. bump tolerance. Um, 
but I mean, your your flight in '88, you it was July, so it was it was definitely ripping. Um, you you land and it's I guess you you felt like you could have gone a lot further that day. You went 243, according to the article. Um, you you weren't really happy when you landed because you hadn't done 300. Um, it, one is that true? Were, were you unhappy? And then and then two, um, you know. I've always had this theory that, you know, chasing big numbers can, can, uh, distract us from the beauty of the flight. And I'm totally, you know, I've succumbed to this as well. I'm, I'm a number chaser just like anybody else, you know, uh, but, um, does that, yeah, I mean, I guess, tell me about that, you know, that record flight. Did you land and were you kind of like, oh man, that sucks because you didn't get 300 or did you land and go, God, that was amazing. I went 243. That's a long well, ways. Well, for sure, I wanted to go farther. The goal, the goal back then, and always was to make it to Battle Mountain on Interstate 80. Uh, but when I got past Austin, the the road cut northwest through a range of mountains, and there was no road to follow anymore, and it was too late in the day. So rather than going off into dinosaur country and uh, landing out and not having a witness. Uh, I, I decided to land uh, where the road curved left out toward the northwest. And as I was spiraling down to land, a car pulled up. And, you know, I must have been hypoxic or tired or something. I, I figured they'd, they'd stop there to see the hang glider. And so I started yelling down at them. And the guy ran back to his car to get a gun because he heard somebody shouting and screaming <laughs> and thought there was something going on out in the bushes. And, he was he was uh, prowling around out in the bushes trying to find out who was screaming and and then I him. landed yeah <laughs> and I landed and he's like you know where did you come from and I told him and it's like yeah right you know you, there's no way you made it from Lone Pine California you know because that's it's a lot farther by car by you know, by a big ways and so you know I talked to these guys into signing all my witness forms and taking all the required photos and all that kind of stuff and. Uh, they didn't have a rack or anything, so I hid my glider off in the bushes, and they gave, they were, gave me a ride back to Austin, to Austin, Nevada, which was an old mining town in the Toyabe Mountains. And so uh, we're heading back to, toward Austin, Nevada, and some hawk comes flying across in front of us and splats on the front window. And it's just like – it was just like a bug you know, hitting a bug to this guy. He just puts on his windshield wipes, starts smearing all the blood and guts across the window, and <laughs> – didn't miss a beat, you know, didn't, didn't, you know, he kept talking and he's talking about how, oh yeah, the U S just shot down an Iranian airliner today. And I'm like, what, why would we do that? And apparently it just was on the same day that some airliner had been flying in the direction of one of our missile ships. And so I don't know, it was just all pretty surreal. And, yeah. uh, I got back to Austin, Nevada and when there's only like one place open, there was a bar and it was an old whorehouse that had, uh, been converted to a bar and a restaurant and the guy there uh gave me a room you know who knows what the history of that room was but uh <laughs> i called down to to i called back to to my rides and everything and uh uh joe bostic uh he flew up and and picked me up i i got a ride out to the little airport near austin he flew up in on the cessna 152 and uh flew me back to the owens valley where I picked up my truck and then went back up to get my glider. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, okay, so 
So now we're up to 88. Uh, this, this, these crazy numbers just keep going down the line here. In 1990, uh, and some, I'm assuming before then, you guys discover Hobbs, uh, New Mexico. You're the first person to fly 300 miles. I, 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 and I actually went back and looked at some of this track because, I mean, you don't, again, you don't have tracks like we do now with the, the devices and everything, but you flew <laughs> Hobbs, New Mexico across a big swath of Texas and land in Oklahoma. Like, I, I have to hear about this flight. That, that is just awesome. Well, yeah, so just about the time we're, you know, getting as about as far as we can possibly get flying in mountains. Uh, some pilots started cracking off really long flights in Illinois and Kevin Christofferson did like 286 miles off Whiskey Peak in Wyoming. And that's when we started doing the math and looking at how fast you go across the flatlands when you're going straight downwind. And uh, rather than try to jump off a mountain in a hurricane like Whiskey Peak, uh, we, we started thinking about towing and uh, we had connections with Jerry Forberger, who had the Atoll towing system in Lubbock, Texas. And that combined with the fact that I, I talked with Rich Jessaroga, who was at the National Ocean Oceanographic and Atmospheric Research Institute in Boulder. He had all these aerial thermo maps from satellite that showed that West Texas retained heat during the afternoon. And the thermal started a lot earlier there than anywhere else. And I started calling all these uh, – sailplane pilots that had world records around there that lived around there and they were happy to talk to me about their soaring and you know how happy they were to live there and fly there and they said it was the best place anywhere to fly so uh joe bostick and i went out to fly with jerry forberger in, in west texas and lubbock and for uh for several days we we were stuck on the wrong side of the dry line or the marfa dew point line and it was kind of low clouds and breezy southeast winds and and uh, overdevelopment. And Joe started doing some research and figured out that if we were on the west side of the dry line, we'd probably be getting a lot more flying in. And we we decided to take a road trip to Hobbs from Lubbock and check out the Soaring Society of America and the, the airport there at Hobbs that the their office was at. And we showed up there and said, hey, you know, we're hang glider pilots. We, we're towing hang gliders and wondered if we could try towing our hang gliders here. And they were all for it. And uh, they said, yeah, you know, you guys can fly here. You know, just, you know, give us a demonstration. So Jerry was there and Joe and I, and we wanted to make everything just perfect, right? So we just, we just went through all of the pre-flights, all of the checks and made sure everything was perfect. And I took off and soared up and he used up the whole runway and I went to release and couldn't release. It wouldn't release. And I didn't have a hook knife. And I was like, oh man, this is bad news. So I'm you know, trying to pull on this and it just won't release. And, uh, and so they're out there with Jerry on the truck and they're saying, what's wrong? And Jerry's like, Oh, I don't know what's wrong. It's like something's wrong. With it. So eventually I, I end up landing with like a mile of line pulling out behind me and land on the runway near the, the, the tow vehicle. And we, we figured out what was wrong. It was a, it was a glitch in his, uh, his tow release that we, he hadn't uh, encountered before. And uh, the people from the Soaring Society said, well, you know, if you guys can get through something like that, it looks safe to us. You know, it looks like you guys have got it together. So, <laughs> yeah, you guys can start flying here and we've got some hangers you can set your gliders up in so you're out of the sun and the wind and we're happy to have you. So that's when Joe Bostick and I started flying at Hobbs and uh, 
the neat thing is, is you can fly just about any direction to get big distance. And uh, you know, just about that time, uh, there was a day where I took off first and – no, I'm sorry. Joe took off first and Joe beamed away from the airport and he was on his way. And then I took off second and I got up and I was on my way. And we were going straight east toward, uh, toward Texas. And Joe bombed out after his first thermal. And I, I was on my way. I kept going uh, into Texas. So apparently uh, Josh, our driver, who was Jerry's son, showed up to pick up Bostic and say, hey, Bostic, hurry. You haven't broken down yet. Hurry up and break down so we can go chase Larry. And Joe's saying, no, set up the rig. Set up the rig. And Josh is like, we can't tow here. You know, there's it's a it's a state highway. There's power lines. You know, there's we can't do it. He's going, no, no, no. I want you to take me back to the airport. And he, he didn't he didn't want to break down the glider. So he puts the glider back up on the tow vehicle and they start going down the the, the state highway there. Oh, and that sounds like a sure bad enough, idea. You know, yeah, sure enough, they get pulled over by the police and he's he's like. You guys are never going to get that pickup truck off the ground, you know, the, the, with that thing. <laughs> and, uh, so, so Joe goes right into his Czech accent, which he could turn off and on at will. And he's going, no, no, we are trying for the world record. And my friend is already going and I need to get back and catch him. And it's a very important it's for the world record. And so the, the police was like, you know. This has got to be illegal, but I don't, I don't know what I could cite you guys for. So he said, okay, what, you guys have to follow me. With, I'll have my lights on so nobody hits us. And he, got, he uh, escorted them all the way back to the Hobbs Airport and uh, all the way down to the end of the runway. And Joe, Joe was on the back hanging on the, uh, underneath the glider the whole way. Oh, and the cop is sitting there trying to figure out you know, what to give this guy a ticket for. And you know he's never seen anything like this before. And uh, Joe looks over at the cop and says, "I owe you a six pack." <laughs> and then he tells Josh, "Go to cruise." And and then they go down the runway. Joe takes off, and he ended up getting the big flight that day. He he flew way over a hundred miles, and uh, I ended up having to chase him with Josh. And when we were tr we were trying to find him, uh, he, we weren't really sure where he was. And so he says, "Hey, do you see a, a B one bomber?" making circles and we're like b1 bomber and so sure enough we see a b1 bomber he goes that guy's doing circles around me so <laughs> that's where i that's where i am they were just like who what in the hell's going on what is, what is exactly. this holy cow they probably thought it was an alien or something yeah these guys these guys were up there flying around joe and trying to figure out what what this thing was it was flying around at you know 12 13, 12 or thirteen thousand feet and joe landed out by monday texas m o m u n d a y yeah. i think but anyhow, we were uh, approaching that part of Texas, and there was this long line of uh, power lines that had just been snapped off at the base. These giant power line poles had just been snapped off at the base. And we, we get to where Joe was, and we're talking with some of the locals, and they go, yeah, we had a windstorm come through here a week or so ago that was so powerful that we had this baseball-sized halo was bouncing off the interior walls before it was hitting the floor. Whoa. And so – you know, you you just have no concept. You know, if the Owens Valley is big for thermals and giant mountains, Texas is big for thunderstorms that defy. Yeah, just uh, they just they just get massive, don't they? They're yeah, they're on yeah, they're you can't even you can't even explain them. So I'm not sure if we got 
a big flight that year or not. But the following year, I was out there with Ted Boyce. And I got to say that Ted Boyce had the right attitude for long-distance flights. He would fly every day no matter what. And he would start early because he said you never know how early you can start on the world record day unless you just try for it. And he wouldn't try to predict the weather. He wouldn't try to second-guess the weather. He would just go for it early and try to go for it every day. So he had really the right attitude, and, and, I, and I learned a lot from him. Well, there was, But he was a racer, and I w- I'm more of a, a floater. I didn't ever race that much, and that's probably why I never got the big competition results either. So I'm too patient and like to take thermals you know, too high and stay in them too long. But there was one day where Ted had put it on the ground somewhere around Clovis, New Mexico, and I was still in the air. And we still had Josh Forberger as our driver. And on this one particular day, there wasn't much in the way of wind. It wasn't a world record day, but it was a good day. It's just that there was no wind and the dust devils were dancing around in the fields going every way, uh, you know, north, south, east, west. They were, they'd make little patterns in the fields. It wasn't really a, a good day for, for open distance. But at any rate, I made it up somewhere near Amarillo and – and Ted comes on the radio. Ted comes on the radio and says, hey, Larry, where are you? And I look around and he said, oh, I'm about uh, 15 miles southeast of, of Amarillo. And Ted goes, Larry, what the fuck are you doing in the air when there's a tornado? What? I'm like, yeah. well, this is, that's what was amazing. Is, uh, on this particular day, there was no wind. And it was an inversion. You'd see these haze domes everywhere, uh, but no no cumulus. And I looked around to see where there might be some rain or a storm. And to the west of me, no, I'm sorry, to the east of me, about 30 miles, 40 miles, there was a little cloud, or not a little cloud. It was a cloud that was dumping rain. And, and uh, Ted comes back on the radio and goes, Larry, what the f- what the fuck are you doing, man? You know, get down on the ground. There's a tornado. And I'm like, I don't see one, Ted. You must be mistaken. It must just be a really big dust devil. <laughs> Ted Ted comes back. He says, nah, Josh, Josh has seen a lot of tornadoes. And he says, this is a tornado. It's, this is definitely a tornado. And so I said, oh, okay. I'm just going to go on final and, and, uh, and land and, and we'll go back because it's not a record day anyway. And so I, I turned north again on course, and I went, holy shit. There was a cloud that had popped in front of me that had a tornado going straight to the ground. It was like a solo cloud, at no big thunder, line of thunderstorms, nothing like that. It was just one cloud that had put this tornado out the bottom right to the cloud, cloud right to the ground. And oh, my God. So I just about shit. Because I I'd, I'd always want to see a tornado before, but never from you know never face to face like <laughs> yeah, five not, miles away. Not flying a hang glider. Not flying in a hang glider. Yeah, I was only like five miles away, literally. Um, and so I turn south. I turn around to start racing away from it. And I and I'm flying as fast as I can in my glider. And I hear this little voice on the radio from Ted saying, "Don't forget to take pictures." <laughs> so I'm like, "Oh man." Uh, okay, okay, okay. So I, I turned around and my hand, I'm by then my, I'm already shaking and I, I'm taking these photos. I'm, and I'm like, okay, that's enough. And so take some photos and turn south again. And I'm, I'm just blazing south trying to get on the ground as fast as I can. 
and uh, not not having a lot of luck because something happened that day where everything started letting loose around five o'clock in the afternoon everywhere all at once. Just the entire desert started lifting and and just clouds were popping everywhere and it was hard to get down. <sighs> so perhaps what was happening is the cloud off to the east triggered a, a gust front that wedged underneath all the hot air that had been building all day mm-hmm. to the west and then everything just kicked loose. It was just enough to bust loose the inversion. So after racing south for, I don't know, 10, 15 miles across the Paladero Canyon, uh, I was looking down and, and I thought my, you know, my eyes were watering or something because everything looked all blurry. And I, I wiped my eyes and looked down. No, it's, I'm definitely blurry. And then I realized that the whole desert was just a big windstorm. And I was oh, like, oh, no, my this, God. Is, this is not good. And so... So I start spiraling down to land on the uh, probably the wrong side of Paladero Canyon from where Josh and and uh, Ted were chasing me from, and we were already out of radio contact. And I spiraled down to land, and I started backing up pretty quickly. It was it was blowing so hard that I was backing up at a pretty pretty fast rate, looking over my shoulder at where I was going to land, and had to pop it up over a barbed wire fence and just uh managed to get down on the ground and jump out on the front what's your what's your trim speed on a hang glider well i'm pretty sure i was flying about 40 or 45 miles an hour when i touched down and i was still going backwards uh i jumped through the control bar and grabbed the front flying wires and my hands were so cramped up from gripping the control bar so hard that i couldn't i couldn't undo my carabiner uh, I kept trying to undo my carabiner to get loose of the glider so I could lay my glider down flat, but I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, make my fingers work. And so back about that time, everything's getting black. I mean, the sun's going away. The sirens are starting for the tornado warnings. Whoa. It's getting really surreal. And, uh, people are trying to get out of town. There was a guy leaving with all his horses in, in the back with his pickup truck. He pulls up at the, the road next to me and he says, Hey, do you need any help? And I'm yelling, yes, yes. Help, I need help. And he I could see him look at me, look up at the tornado, look at me, look up at the tornado. He got back in his car and just hauled ass. And I'm like, oh no. So here I am. Here I am standing there in this big field and you know, all hell's breaking loose with the weather, and I can't unhook from the glider. And fortunately, Josh and Ted show up and we we broke down the glider in record time, threw it on top, and started working our way out to try to get back to Lubbock. And the whole way out, it was just surreal because there would be these baseball games with all the lights on and people were out there on their lawn chairs and the tornado is right there. They're looking at the tornado and look at the baseball game, look at the tornado and look at the baseball game. And it's just life in West Texas. They're just used to tornadoes. And Man, that is uh, terrifying. The hackles on my skin are, <laughs> oh my God. So that, it was pretty terrifying, but it just, you know, really showed me that weather can change so quickly and when you're at 15,000 feet and everything starts to lift off it's pretty hard to get down on the ground in any any short amount of time man and so tell me about in that encampment did you was that the year you did the record oh yeah so so uh Ted and I were trying for these flights and getting some pretty long flights and there was a competition coming up in Hobbs because Hobbs had started to be discovered by then and they were going to hold a tow competition in Hobbs. And there was uh, one day where we got a really long flight up past 
Klein's Corners up towards Santa Fe, New Mexico, which was my, uh, somewhere around 260, 275 miles. And the next day, uh, got back late, like 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, got a few hours sleep, tried it again, and got another flight up, to, up toward the north of New Mexico. And that was like 280 miles and had another real late retrieval and very little sleep. And there was, this was the last day before the Hobbs competition was about to begin. But even after having two long flights in a row and being uh, sleep deprived, I just jumped out of bed that morning and I had this premonition from the previous night's sleep that I was going to do this flight. And I had lived this flight exactly as it panned out. And I knew it was going to happen. Uh, we were always doing uh, declared goals, but we never really could be sure where our declared goal would be when we're flying the flatlands. Because if you're off mm, a few degrees, yeah. it's, it means miles and sure. miles of difference. But uh, I knew I was going to do it. So I called up Will's Wing and I talked to Rob and, and all the boys and said, I'm going to call you tonight from Elkhart, Kansas, because that's where I'm going to land. And they're like, oh, that's nice, Larry. That's nice. Hope you're having a good vacation. And which is always sort of an inside joke because they always figured when I'm out on the road, uh, you know, I'm not at work bending batons <laughs> or doing real work. And uh, then uh, there was a pilot in Elkhart, Kansas, uh, Ron Kinney, who I had flown with on previous years. And I found his number and called him up and said, hey, Ron, would you sign my witness form if I, if I land in Elkhart tonight? And he's like, yeah, yeah, right, whatever. Are you here in town? Are you – putting me on you you know what kind of joke is this i said no no i'm calling you from hobbs i'm gonna land next to the pizza hut tonight and i want you to sign my forums these like going whatever dude you know just have fun have a fun day you know wow and so then uh i told i told my uh my driver pat page uh my my official observer i said you know find the coordinates for the airport in elkhart kansas because that's where i'm going to land i'm I'm, that's i know i'm going to land Next to the Pizza Hut on the grass in Elkhart, Kansas tonight. That's what's that, and and I don't know. How, I didn't know it was 300 miles at the time. He just said that's where I'm going to land, and so we we filled out the forms, took the photos, and the flight played out exactly like uh, I, I relived it. It in fact uh, the first thermal I took out of the airport, I had a, a low save above all these oil derricks, and I was only about 200 feet off the ground, and there's not much. Uh, not much good landing around there because it's all mesquite and oil derricks and, and electric lines. And I wasn't nervous. I wasn't nervous that I was going to land or anything because it was all part of the same dream or the same premonition that I'd had the night before. So all the low saves, all the, all through the flight, it was exactly as it played out in the dream, with the exception that at the very end of the day, I started getting low in the panhandle of Texas, northern Texas, and it didn't seem like there's going to be any thermals left, but there was uh, a big feedlot. The feedlots there are just huge. And so I flew over the, passed over the feedlot and didn't get anything and just kept heading north and was thinking that this was just another cruel joke that I was going to get another 280 mile flight and uh, not, not get the, the world record. And so just about that time I started to smell manure and mm. the burial started to be dead and started getting real patient and just working this thermal uh, for what seemed like an eternity and gained enough altitude to uh, 
turn downwind again and make sort of a, a dead reckoning toward Elkhart, Kansas. We didn't have GPS at the time, so I wasn't really sure exactly where Elkhart, Kansas was. But <laughs> you know how late in the day you just get that buoyant air and when you have a good uh. tail. And uh, I just got real pointy and brought my elbows in really close and kept my head down and, you know, tucked my thumbs in behind the, de- the control bar and just did everything I could to not move and not uh, – not uh, detract from my glide and just flew along at minimum sink to let the wind carry me. And so is it literally just a compass you're following for 308 miles? I mean, were there roads, were there landmarks, were there, or was it just this premonition guiding you? It's it's pretty much dead reckoning. Okay. God, this is awesome. Okay. Keep going. I don't want to interrupt. Oh yeah. So, uh, I was heading across the Oklahoma panhandle and with all that altitude I got from that last feedlot thermal and, uh, then I started to make out uh, some uh, grain towers and a diagonal road and the railroad tracks and all that. And I knew that that was uh, Elkhart, Kansas, and got there with about I don't know three or four thousand feet. And uh, since that was my declared goal and everything, I I hovered down and landed uh, just exactly where where I, I thought I would, right next to the Pizza Hut uh, <laughs> at the airport. So you could have kept and, going. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, even so, I'm still glad I did it. Um, it's just, you know, the, so the most special part about that flight wasn't that, that it, we went more than 300 miles. No, it was, it was that you did what you said you were going to do. That's insane. Well, yeah. And it's not only that I said what I was going to do, but in, in this life, you hear stories about people that experience things that are beyond, you know, what's explainable. Sure. But until it actually happens to you, it, it uh, doesn't carry the same weight. So uh. just to know that these types of things are possible or just to know that uh, we do have senses beyond what we we encounter day to day that we're kind of dumbed down to, we have potential that's just – who knows what our potential is. Oh, so. this is so inspiring. I'm just thinking about all the times that – all the things we can do on on paragliders now and i want to i want to get to you in paragliding but this this is kind of remarkable because and i know you're going to play it down because you're humble but you know you you fly 308 miles you land at the pizza hut this no one goes that far for another 10 years is that why what what you know what what breaks down there in the hang gliding community is it the is it the weather? Is it just those days didn't come around anymore? Or did were people just not pushing? Because, I mean, you've got this, you know, you go 200, you go 243, you go 300, you go 308 uh, over, you know, a decade. Um, no, a little more than that, 11, 12, 12 years. Um, and then it's not repeated for 10 years. That's that's amazing because the gear certainly didn't stop getting better. Well, it was probably a combination of things. You know, definitely the pilots were getting a lot better. Uh, with all the competitions and uh, the racing that was going on, people were becoming a lot more efficient at their flying. Uh, for sure, you know, pilots like Manfred Rumer were so fast and so efficient and, and not afraid to fly fast. Uh, whereas I was more of the type of pilot that would uh, just uh, try to stay aloft for as long as I could because if you could stay aloft for 10 or 12 hours, uh, with a good tailwind, you're going to go far. So I think it was a combination of uh, the topless gliders coming along and the, the Mylar sails. And then, of course, Gary Ossipa in Kansas uh, discovered that this 
sea breeze that comes in from the Gulf of Mexico at Zapata, Texas, uh, triggers really early morning thermals that people can can use to get uh, up toward West Texas mm-hmm. into the same sort of air that Bostic and I were flying in out of Hobbs, New Mexico. So I think those are the things. However, you know, it's like you said, there's the numbers game and then there's the flights that just stay with you and the ones that are, are just um, memorable and you look back on them and you just think, wow, how did that, how did that ever happen? The ones through the mountains, like what you guys are doing in, in Idaho or what Will Gadd and those guys are doing up in British Columbia, uh, those are the type of flights that I love and you know just the dreaming of you know how I, I you see these mountains all the time when you're growing up or in your climbing career and you look back on that and you go wow I would really like to fly that mountain so what Antoine Girard is mm-hmm. doing in Pakistan on the Kara Forum yeah. that's my hats off to that guy I mean he's he's extraordinary yeah, and what neat. you guys are doing in in uh Idaho is extraordinary. I mean, there's a lot of hang glider pilots. I don't know if there's any hang glider pilots that are doing the type of flying that you guys are doing, and and you've come up with a way of maximizing the potential of that place by jumping ranges. Instead of trying to follow mountain ranges, you're just getting up and going over the back and hitting the next range and the next range, and that's that's pretty amazing because you can't keep a driver underneath you Mm. when you're doing that kind of flying, and so you're a lot more exposed. Yeah, I mean, but it's at, at the same time, I, I I just really am fascinated with the commitment that you guys have with it because of the machines you're flying. It's just, that's a different thing. I mean, on a paraglider, you can land anywhere and walk out anywhere, you know? And, and I mean, I guess you guys could leave your gear and walk out, but it's just, it's, it's more committing for sure when you're on a hang glider just in terms of movement, you know? You, you just don't have that... Um, Anyway, I, I just hats off. That it's just remarkable. And before before we leave it, I I've only asked you like one tenth of the questions we've got, but we're already almost an hour and a half in. So I want to hear. I do definitely want to hear a couple things. One is um, you left hang gliding for quite a long time, and then you've come back to flying pretty recently. But you but now you're paragliding. So tell me about uh, those two those two things. I, I imagine they're they're similar but different. Well, uh, so yeah, I was hang gliding a lot and in the industry a lot. And I think that when you make your love, your, your business, it's, uh, it loses a little bit. Mm. And when that came to a head for me was, uh, I was importing laminar hang gliders from Icaro in Italy. And, uh, one of the pilots that I, I was sponsoring was one of my best friends I'd flown all over the world with. And he, he tumbled at Sandia Peak in Albuquerque and his bridle for his parachute uh, snapped his neck on, on opening and he died. And then his wife's brother brought a lawsuit against us and, you know, some toothless old hag in a rusted out Chevy Vega, Vega pulled up in my driveway and served me. And so I was a little bit soured at that time because I'd spend all my time doing, uh, parts orders and delivering gliders and testing gliders and uh you know just wasn't getting as much flying as i wanted Mm. and i was also going broke and i had a wife and a daughter by then and even when i was flying once you have a daughter you're you're kind of thinking that you know the risks you take for yourself aren't aren't uh 
aren't good when, when you, you've got a family waiting for you at mm. home. So it's kind of a self, it's the, the sport seems more selfish at that mm. point. So I think that lawsuit definitely soured me completely. Mm. And, uh, and when was, when was that? That was 90, that was 99. Okay. okay. And so I was basically pretty much out of money and, uh, that's the only reason that they didn't get anything out of me, that the loss didn't go anywhere. Uh, they could have gotten some down tubes and some spare parts, but you know. here's a carabiner. Go away. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can have everything. I don't want it anymore. Right, Please right. take it. You know, but I, I was, I, I didn't have any desire to go out and fly. I hadn't quit hang gliding, but I just didn't have any desire to fly. Yeah. And we, we were doing a lot of other things like skating and speed skating and, uh, my daughter turned into a really good figure skater and uh, my, I didn't fly. I didn't even follow flying. I just, just basically disappeared from the, the face of the planet. And over the course of time, you know, my daughter had heard rumors like she'd do Google, Google searches on me or at school they'd have a uh, – Like career day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and, and she'd, she'd do a Google search and say, oh, yeah, here, here's my dad. He's got all these world records in hang gliding. Oh, yeah, there was a Guinness book that they opened up, and she found my name in there, too, at school. So she knew that I flew, and she knew that I had made a name for myself in flying. And she was uh, about ready to leave for Europe this year to go study in Lugano, Switzerland, and she wanted to paraglide there. And I said, well, if you're going to go there to paraglide, you, I want you to know how to fly before you leave. And so uh, we went to Utah together with another friend of mine from work who was wanting to fly paragliders. His name's Ragu. And we hooked up with Chris Tanacroce, and uh, we started right at the bottom of the hill and started taking uh, the, the lessons together as beginners. And out of the three, I was probably the slowest to learn because I was having to unlearn old bad habits. And I just don't learn as quickly as I used to. And my reflexes sure. aren't as fast. And with somebody yelling at you, you know, pull this, don't pull that, let off this, you know, left, right. And, uh, you know, I, was, I was, wasn't the best student. I think Turtle got kind of pissed off at me more than once because he thought I was just being obtuse. <laughs> but uh, we went through the whole course right. together and uh, started at the bottom. And Ariane was soaring by the time we left. And uh, there was one moment that was that was pretty cool. Uh, there was a, a beautiful north day. I mean, it was one of those perfect north side days. And she hadn't actually had a soaring flight yet on the north side. And so Chris took her up the north side. And, you know, you climb, you're climbing up the north side and the lift is getting stronger and stronger. And you crest the top of the north side and you look back on Mount Timpanogos and the Wasatch and Utah Lake and everything just opens up. And. Uh, she was telling Chris, wow, you know, now I understand why my dad does this, you know. Yeah. And she started crying. And, and uh, so when she landed, she came up and hugged me and she went, wow, wow, now I know why you do this. This is so cool. This is so much fun. Wow, that is so cool. That talk about yeah. full circle. And I mean, and then for you, um, did it just kind of reignite? all those old memories and, you know, and why you were always, you've always been a pilot. I mean, it must've been, that must've been incredible to just rediscover flight. Yeah, it was. In fact, that's exactly what I've enjoyed most about it is it uh, reignited those same exact feelings I had when I first discovered hang gliding. Every, every little step was, was, uh, was fun. You know, so every, the first little flights off the south side and the first soaring flights. In fact, the first soaring flight I did on the on the north side where Chris remote controlled me up off the bench to the 
to the top of the north side, uh, looking down on all the houses and on the bench and houses in the gap. And uh, it just, I just seems so out of sorts. It didn't seem like it was real because. Uh, you saw it when none of that was there. Yeah, I didn't recognize anything. I just, I wasn't sure if I was in a dream, but I thought, well, you know, I might not be in a dream, so I better keep it together. <laughs> and uh, so that, that one was, that one, I wasn't 100% there on my first flight when I benched up uh, on the north side, but on another flight off the, the bench, I got up and the clouds came over. And I, I was the only one on the north side because no one else could bench up. And so I had the north side to myself for a couple hours and, and that was really, really, really special. And, and then I, I really took advantage of that. And uh, then the, definitely the love came back for the flying and for the point. And I was afraid that I'd go back to the point and see how developed the north side was or de- developed the, the valley was and, and uh, be bummed out. But I was actually pretty enthused to see all of the families and kids and hang glider, paraglider pilots that are enjoying the the point of the mountain and it's a park now and it's it's really brought out a lot of energy and and positive uh you know just a lot of positive things that that it there wasn't there before because it was just uh a bunch of uh, uh enthusiasts but now that there's homes up there and kids that are out there being free range kids and hmm. you know just being part of the the hang gliding paragliding from you know, the, the moments there they can first walk is really cool to see. Mm. It's really cool. And now you've brought it back. You, you've brought it back to Boulder and Denver and your your hometown, and you're flying with those kooks, Matt Siegel and Cedar Wright, and they they call paragliding their sky crack. <laughs> yeah, and that must be that must be a pretty crack. fun uh, pretty fun scene to be a part of. Yeah, it actually is. Uh, Cedar's just a total crack up. He's super funny, super clever, and uh, super anti-authoritarian, which I, I like as well. And uh, you know, I, instead of sky crack, I like to call it speed to fly. Just the whole energy of the pilots in Boulder is is, is outrageous. You know, they're they're all just uh, total enthusiasts, uh, and uh, they they're just enjoying going cross country any any direction they can every flight they can and uh it's so cool to go flying uh you know take some uber up the hill and then find out that it's matt siegel you know yeah. and you know there's there's seth and matt siegel and Caesar Wright and these legends of rock that have discovered our little yeah. our little uh sky paradise isn't it okay well i i think I think uh, this is really timely with your your daughter learning. One of the questions I had, and that, and we're going to end it on this one because I want to be mindful of your time. And I think we're going to have to do a part two or something with this because, like I said, I, I I didn't ask you half the stuff I wanted to. That was just fascinating talk. Thank you. But if you could rewind the clock all the way back to year one when you were, you know, or year two when you were a fifty-hour pilot, what what advice do you wish you would have either followed or would have received? and think about your daughter when you answer it oh well most definitely i think i've come full circle in, in the sense that uh, when i first learned how to fly here in colorado uh, anybody that learns how to fly any type of aircraft in colorado uh, learns how to judge the weather and be respectful of the weather and especially with paragliding you need to stay within your limits you can't fly in overdevelopment or or wind and so 
uh, as Chris Santacroce says, you know, fly for smiles, not miles. Just, mm-hmm. just think of the the long term and not mm-hmm. and not uh, trying to catch up with uh, you and Will Gad and you know, don't try to make a big name for yourself all at once or get the big flight all at once. But enjoy the enjoy the ride, enjoy the the process. Take your time. It sounds like. Yeah, uh, enjoy your time. Be safe and and don't have any horrendous experiences that'll. Uh, cause you to drop out. Cool. That's great. Larry, uh, <laughs> you've, you've given me wrinkles here, man. I've had the biggest smile on my face this whole talk. Thank you so much. That was just fascinating. I hearing about your tornado and 308 mile flight. And I mean, I, I think we're just going to have to do a part two, but it's really cool to talk to an old hangy and, uh, utmost respect, man. That's just, uh, so admirable and i'm i'm uh thrilled that you've uh kind of refound the sport and uh and that you're doing it with your daughter very very cool um thank you very much thanks for coming on the show and i hope uh, you and i get to meet at cloud base someday can't wait thanks for having me gavin all right buddy I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, such a cool talk. I've still got the hugest smile on my face after that one a couple weeks ago when we recorded it. Uh, it took a while to edit that. Thank you so much to my friend Miles Connolly who's helping me out with uh, editing of these shows. Got some great ones coming up for you. Working on one right now with Mickey Siegel. Uh, got a great one in the can with uh, Russ Ogden as we near the holidays here trying to get some great material out for you guys. As always, thank you so much for your uh, donations to the mayhem. Uh, as always, always, all we ask for is a buck a show. So if you got something out of this one or one of the previous episodes, uh, send us a buck. I really appreciate it. It goes a long ways to making this all possible. If you're just discovering the podcast, um, go back and check out. I, sometimes I rattle off the same people over and over again, and I actually just printed out the sheet of everybody we've had on. We're almost we're near 30 now. Um, terrific stories from guys like Guy Anderson, who disappeared here in the uh, PwC back in 2012. Isabella Messenger just raps poetic on all things flight. Uh, fantastic talk with her. Uh, really good acro talk with Ander Prashaska. He is uh, Aaron Durigati's ex-Alps supporter. Great talk with Aaron actually in there. So yeah, go back, check some of them out. Uh, Tom Dorlado has some fantastic advice after a couple of accidents uh, in the ex-Alps and otherwise. Uh, terrific pilot, part of that search project team. They're doing so many great things. So. Yeah, dig in, uh, download these for a big road trip wherever you're going flying the next time. Fly safe, fly far, have fun, and we'll see you on the next show. Cheers.